Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. It's time to celebrate this messy decade and to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end, because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by the inspirational Aaron Phipps. The word inspirational gets thrown around a hell of a lot these days, but if there's one man to do it justice, it's Aaron. At just 15 years old, Aaron was rushed to hospital after contracting meningitis C, which resulted in him becoming a bilateral below-knee amputee. After spending a year in hospital, the rest of his teenage years were spent recovering, rehabilitating and adapting to his new life-changing circumstances. In his early 20s, after attaining a job in HR and, in Aaron's words, failing miserably at it, he took part in the Totten 10K wheelchair race to raise money for Meningitis Research Foundation. His positive energy and commitment to give back to the charity which had given him and his family endless support drove Aaron to complete multiple races, including two London marathons, the second of which he finished fourth highest male at the incredible time of one hour and 59 minutes. He was then scouted by GB Wheelchair Rugby and embarked on an exciting journey into international athleticism. In his late 20s, Aaron got married and had his first child before competing in the London 2012 Paralympics for the GB Wheelchair Rugby team, where he excelled in the sport, scoring over half of the overall points for the team. But Aaron didn't stop there. In 2016, he became the first disabled British person to climb Mount Kilimanjaro without assistance, spending the last four days of the trek climbing on his hands and knees to reach the summit. Aaron has now raised an astonishing quarter of a million pounds for meningitis research and along with continuing to train for Team GB is also a motivational speaker. Throughout Aaron's tremendous journey he has excelled, inspired and proven that if you have a positively focused mindset then there really is nothing that can stop you. When reaching the Kilimanjaro summit he said we made it, we all have choices. Aaron, I'm so incredibly inspired to see how all of the choices you've made have got you to where you are now and very grateful that you've also chosen to join me on the podcast today. Aaron, welcome to 20 Not Something. Hello, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, good, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very well. Good. How's all the homeschooling going? Well, it's um, it's going. I'm doing my best. It's it's a little bit easier now because lockdown's lifting a little bit. My mum's coming around and helping and she is a qualified teacher. Uh, she's retired, oh, so she stopped dream. teaching. Yeah, yeah, it is, absolutely. But <laughs> the problem is it's pointed out to the girls how bad I am at teaching. <laughs> so, whereas before they were quite happy with me doing my best, now they're like, oh, you're terrible. You're not doing it anymore. So <laughs> but it's just the way she can just chat to them and teach them. She can, I don't know how she does it's it. It's like she natural. Just, yeah. yeah. She'll trick them into teaching them. So she'll say, have a look at this painting. What should we learn about it? And they come up with a list of stuff. See, I say oh, we have to learn this, this, and this, and they say, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I'm going to kick things off, Aaron, by asking you the same question I ask everyone, and that is, when you were looking into your 20s decade, what did you want the most? Oh, I wanted, uh, I wanted to find someone to love. I was uh, a oh. bit more softy. Yeah, I wanted to, um, yeah, I've been poorly and... Lots of strange things had happened to me as you yeah. said in the intro. And um, I don't know, really. I was still, I don't think I'd kind of really come to terms with what had happened to me, to be honest. Um, being poorly at 15, it's a strange age, isn't it? I think mm. probably moving into my 20s, you know, you think you know everything, don't you? But it turns out you generally, you don't, do you? And then as you move yeah. through life, you still don't know everything. But um, <laughs> I just wanted to find someone I loved. 
And that's so beautiful, though, because you did actually meet your wife when you were twenty-one. Yeah, I did. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's and... in the bag. Succeeded that one quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. No, I just wanted to to meet someone. I don't. Oh well, sounds a bit cheesy, doesn't it? But yeah, no, I did. And um, yeah, I met Vicky and. Sounds like, you know, I just grabbed the first person, but I was just really lucky. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is lovely. Yeah. I can't imagine what those teenage years must have been like for you. You know, being a teenager at the best of times is, you know, uh, such an overwhelming time. But to go through, you know, what you went through must have been so overwhelming. Um, When you talk about sort of what happened to you in sort of other um, speaking events I've I've heard from you, you you reflect on it in such like a a positive way. And I just wondered like whether that was something that took a long time to come to terms with or whether you've always sort of been that sort of forward thinking, positive person. I think I decided early on after my amputations that I was going to try and beat what happened to me and I wasn't going to let it hold me back. And it's funny, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to kick up the bum, um, nearly dying will do that to you. And it gave me a drive which I didn't have before. So I now try and look at it as a positive rather than a negative. But I think you've just got to try and be positive, haven't you? There's so many miserable people moaning about everything. But reality is living in this country, I mean, we're really lucky. And it's, you know, we've got a lot to be thankful for. And you can drive yourself mad with the negative, can't you? You can get that positive mindset. Um, Mm. I think you just lead a better life, don't you? Happier. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of people, when they go through something so traumatic, you know, you can either say, walk around with a ship on your shoulder or or you can, you know, flip it on its head, which is what you did and just be like, actually, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to take whatever chances I can, I can take from it. Yeah, indeed. And it, to be honest, it's created a lot of opportunities for me as well. So it's, it's funny how things work out, isn't it? But I guess that's from having the positive mindset about it. If you're negative about it, then it's just going to mm. hold you back, isn't it? If you're positive yeah. about things, then yeah, it's potentially gonna it's gonna you know help you out in the long run. Mm, for sure. So, had sport always been a big part of your life then, or was that something that you discovered later on? Uh, yeah, I fell into it. So, when I was a teenager, I was more into my extreme sports like rollerblading, uh, skateboarding, BMXing, that that kind of thing. Really, um, I was at a skate park the other day with my girls trying to get them to go up and down the ramps um that was that was quite good fun I'm trying to live my life back through then um uh but yeah no not particularly not I I played a bit of basketball and played a bit of sport at school but nothing nothing serious at all I wasn't wouldn't even class myself as one of those sporty people it was um really no not at all I mean I was athletic I liked being active I was in scouts and um liked being out and about and um you know it's back before I mean we had computers back then didn't we they weren't the same as they are now on my mega drive mm. um but we liked being out and about with my friends a lot I was always out on my bike you know so I guess it stemmed a little bit from there but now I just mm. fell into it um just by <laughs> raising money for charity Chance. and then you you know you're <laughs> oh, yeah. becoming an elite athlete <laughs> as you do just casually yeah <laughs> yeah exactly that's everything that happens to me normally happens to me because I give something a go that I wasn't you know um I wasn't expecting to. And then from out of nowhere, something else comes of it. <laughs> That's brilliant though. Is that, is that what happened with the Totten 10K then? You were just like, I want to raise some money for charity. I'm going to do this race. And then it sort of spiraled from there. Yeah. So I entered that first race. Literally, I was sat at work in my HR job, which you mentioned, which I failed at. And um, my colleague was across the way and I said, oh, I think I want to do something for charity. And he went, oh, I should enter the race. And I went, all right, literally like that. And that was it. <laughs> and... um. <laughs> 
my training consisted of going out on my lunch break and going up and down the hill where I worked. Um, really? it, was quite a, it was quite a big hill. Went up and down that every day, about 10 times. Couldn't do it too much, though, because mm. we're in a suit. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, that was it. Did the 10K race. But that didn't quite go to plan because I started at the very start of the pack, which if you're in a wheelchair in races, you start at the front. And they blew the whistle and off I went. And then they blew the whistle and all the runners started. But over the course of the next few minutes, every single runner overtook me. And I came right at the back. <laughs> <laughs> but that massively changed because, you know, you, after that race, you were racing you know, quite frequently. And then obviously up until the London Marathon. So what, what, describe to me what sort of happened between that first race and then the marathons to sort of click you into wanting to do it more and more. Well, at first, I just, I enjoyed it and thought I want to do more races, but if I'm going to do it, I have to do it a bit um, more professionally. So I got in contact with the Great Britain Wheelchair Racing Association, and they put me in contact with a racer selling a second-hand racing wheelchair. I met him in a car park in Portsmouth the day before the Great South Run and bought this second-hand wheelchair off him. It didn't fit me. It was this blue thing. It was a bit short. I mean, he was quite a small guy that used a wheelchair and I'm a quite a, I was a bigger guy. He was an amputee. So, he, you know, he was paralyzed and I was an amp. So it didn't fit me right. But my dad's an engineer. My dad's a welder. So he took it to work, and cut it up the best he could. So I had this wheelchair that, um, it didn't fit me, but it, um, it, it was start, you know, and yeah, then I started entering sure. more races and going out training. I, I, to be honest, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I wrote myself a little training program and off I went. Um, and it just built up from there, really. I love that because it just goes to show, you know, I see so many people who are like, oh, I want to run a marathon, but I don't have a trainer or I don't know what to do or oh, I don't know how far to run. And there's so much on the Internet now, obviously. But back then, I mean, it, that must have taken some serious motivation to not even be told or have a clue how to train for something, but just go out and do it. I really admire that. <laughs> Thank you very much. But again, <laughs> it was doing it for charity because the problem is with doing stuff for charity, as soon as you get sponsored by someone, you can't back out, can you? So I, <laughs> I did the great self run again and I was pushing the chair so badly. I didn't have any technique. I didn't know what I was doing, but I did the great. Oh, that was horrendous. I remember <laughs> it. The weather was dreadful. And um, on the great self run, it's, it's a 10 mile road race. And when you come around the final corner, there's a two mile stretch along the, the front in Portsmouth, along the seafront. And it was a headwind the whole way. And I went along it at oh. about three mile an hour, but I finished it um Fair. again at the back but you know it's all still going in the right direction that's what counts though isn't it finishing the race have you ever wanted to have been have you ever not finished a race uh well no i've never not finished a race i nearly didn't finish my first london marathon so after I'd done the great mm. south someone said to me you sent the london marathon and again i went yeah all right <laughs> it is the thing takes most people years to get into the marathon. You know, you're applying the ballot year after year after year. Not if you're in a wheelchair, every cloud and that. So I got accepted first time. And um, I mean, that was, that was a, a different level. The Great South Run was 10 miles and you can kind of scrape by as an amateur athlete doing that. But a marathon's a little bit different. Mm. Um, I'm going on a tangent here. That's it, right? Didn't finish, nearly didn't finish the race. Yeah, so what happened, I was still in my bodge secondhand racing wheelchair at this point. And I started the London Marathon and up to mile 13, which is halfway, everything was going okay. And then halfway around, my chair broke. One of the straps broke underneath the seat. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I mean, 
it didn't collapse completely, but my backside must have dropped down about four inches. And oh, racing wheelchair's got to fit you really well because you're kind of curled up in a little ball. So because my chair broke, I started getting a horrendous cramp in my backside. I spent the whole second half of the London Marathon in my backside absolutely killing me. And I must admit, oh. I could have given up a few times then. But again, I raised all this money for charity and you can't give up when you've raised money for charity because <laughs> you look like a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does help when the stakes are sort of that high. I, I Countless times I'll go out for like a... 5k run and I'll just start walking or sometimes be like oh I'm not going to go that far actually but actually yeah I can imagine if you're in that sort of environment you know and you've and you've got all these people who've backed you you don't really have a choice in that instance <laughs> <laughs> no 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 that's it and, and all your family have come to London to support you as well it's cost yeah. of money you know and um so it's all driven by money this actually isn't it I thought I was just <laughs> motivated but just it's for financial gain <laughs> speaking of motivation then what what does motivation look like to you you know why do you do the things that you do what what drives you um well honestly I think it's probably from having a chip on my shoulder about nearly dying um mm. I, but it's a bit of a curse because it's great in some ways because it gives me this drive but I'm kind of never settled always got kind of itchy feet pun intended so I always you know I'm always looking for the next thing, the next big thing to do. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Paralympics is taking all my time at the moment. That is the big thing. Yeah. But whatever happens in the future, I don't think I'll ever stop. Mm. So going from quite an individual sport like racing um, to then moving into GB wheelchair rugby, did that come as like quite a shift in your mindset? Because in, in individual sports, it's, it's very different to being in a team and that sort of um, environment. Um, did you find that you slotted in quite easily into the wheelchair rugby environment, or did you, did you struggle with that? Yeah, it was a, it was a, a kind of a shift because yeah, in an individual sport, it's not just when you're racing as well. It's like all everything that goes with it. So I might have travelled up to a big race maybe with my dad or a friend or someone you know they'd help me get my chair ready before the race and then off I'd go and you'd be on your own but you kind of you're just really in quite a little bubble and next thing you know you're in this massive team with a big support network mm. lots of different people lots of personalities and team meetings um mm. I mean I'd always I'd always worked and had different jobs so I was used to kind of working in that professional environment and you know you know it's like when you work you get on with some people better than you get on with other people um so that wasn't yeah. too much of a shock but it was, um, it was just the sport. It was so different. I mean, I was used to going in a straight line as fast as I could. Now I'm in this sport where you can literally smash other people out of their wheelchair, you know. And, um, <laughs> and it's quite funny. In rugby, um, there's a classification system, but most of the players are, uh, are, are, won't sound very PC, but they're more disabled than me. So I went from this, this world where I'm kind of quite disabled into this sport where people are telling me I've got a scratch wound, you know to just man up and get on with it that was kind of probably quite good for me to be fair yeah is it is it true that um wheelchair rugby used to be called murder ball or something because of yeah, how yeah, it is a, yeah so story goes they struggled to get they called it murder ball they struggled to get corporate sponsorship for a sport named murder ball <laughs> and they couldn't enter into the paralympics called murder ball so they changed the name to wheelchair rugby as rugby goes, it is, you know, just as physical, if not more so, you know, it's absolutely what you guys put yourselves through, like the roughness of it. It's, it's so exciting to watch. Have <laughs> you seen it? Yeah, it's, um, I, it looks worse than it is. We're generally okay when you have the big hits. 
Um, it's yeah, it's good spectator sport. I must admit, it's so end to end as well. It's really exciting. Mm. So let's talk about London 2012. Then describe that feeling of like being selected for the Paralympic Games. <laughs> That's quite a nice story. I'd gone to a school to do an assembly as a favour for a friend, and I was sat outside the school at lunchtime eating my sandwich before I went in. And I knew that I was going to get a phone call from my coach in this two-day window. And my phone went, and it was my head coach. I went, oh, gosh, here we go. So I answered the phone, and he said, you know, congratulations, Aaron, you've been selected. And I was so relieved, I just burst into tears. Because I couldn't – well, I just didn't know if I was going to get selected, and it was this massive moment. I couldn't tell anyone because it was top secret. So at that exact point, the head teacher from the school came out to greet me in my car, and I'm sort of sat there sobbing. And he's like, are you all right? You're all right. I'm fine. I'm fine. Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. He thought my cat had been run over or something. But I went into that school like a Cheshire cat. You know what I mean? Like this big, massive grin. That's so lovely. So sort of putting your sporting commitments aside for a minute, you also obviously did a hell of a lot more with your 20s with like family-wise. You know, you got married and you had two children. Did you ever expect to sort of start a family in your 20s? Um, I don't know. Um. I suppose I wanted to find someone who I cared about and maybe, and I always wanted children. I think they're brilliant, aren't they? I think it's what it's all about personally. I know different people have different opinions, but I've always wanted children and um, yeah. I wasn't too worried what colour, make or anything else they came out as long as <laughs> everything was in the right place. I haven't seen lots of poorly babies <laughs> when I was poor. Uh, you know, I just, as long as they came out as they should, I was happy and they did. So really fortunate mm. there. Um, yeah, yeah, two girls. Um, we've got two female rabbits as well. So <laughs> got a man. It's a very girly house. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I love it though. I love it going out with my girls. What me and me and Chloe built a fire truck yesterday. That was good. Oh. <laughs> How did you find sort of balancing your obviously busy sporting commitments with the family life? Well, honestly, that's a nightmare. Um, that's one of the most difficult things of being an athlete. I find is being away from home bit of a home bird and I don't like leaving my girls behind so that is tough um and there's not too much you can do about that really it's easier now they're older because they understand a bit more you can chat to mm. them on Skype and things and they kind of understand that you might be away but when you're back you're back for longer and you can do things with them when they're little mm. and they're sort of they're sort of sobbing you know because you go in and mm. then they give you the cold shoulder when you get back as well that's really really difficult <laughs> Why'd you leave me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, what? Yeah, they don't understand at all, do they? They just think, you don't love me, you've gone. You know, and that's it. It's, it's black and white. There's nothing, there's no in between. Yeah. Did they come and watch your games, though? Yeah, Ella was one at them. London 2012. So she came and watched it. We got some lovely photos of her. She didn't have a clue what was oh. going on, but she was there. <laughs> um, and, but they do now. Um, one of my favourite tournaments we have this year is in Leicester called Quad Nations, King Power Quad Nations. And, um, uh that's really great because they can come and support me and watch me and everything so yeah it's a really good tournament i love that one. Oh, that's really lovely what was your highlight of london 2012 oh i'd love to say getting a medal what we came fifth so i'll mm. say i think it was there just with the home crowds i mean we nearly sold out the entire event didn't we and yeah. you know you go out in the park and you get mobbed by people wanting your autograph and things and we were like superstars that that was lovely. There was so many cool things happened. Like David Cameron was like bowing down to me and Dave Anthony after a game. Um, 
when Johnny Peacock won the 100 metres, we were sat on our balcony, which was overlooking the stadium in our flat. And we heard the roar before he ran across the um, line on the telly. There was just so many, so many good things. Oh, and then the Heroes Parade afterwards as well. Yeah. London had, it was mobbed with people. Bananas. I expected there to be a couple of people, but it was, it was just chaos. Like people (laughs) hanging out of the window, sat on top of phone boxes. It was just, that was, that was amazing because I didn't expect that to be as good as it was, you know? Yeah. So many little surprises. I carried the torch as well before the games. That was cool. That's so, so cool. I literally love the Olympics so much. I'm so sorry to you guys um, about this year. Like, it must just be like so frustrating having you put all that training in for it to be postponed. <laughs> it was a weird feeling, I'll be honest. Um, yeah. My entire lifestyle was based around peaking at that moment in August. So when they said, oh, it's not happening, and you you understand why, and you know that it's the right mm. thing for it not to happen, it was still tough to, to take in. But... I had about a week of being really miserable and then I kind of sorted it out, to be honest. Mm. Coming out of your 20s then, um, obviously your early 30s, you climbed Kilimanjaro. Where did that decision come from? Was it for charity again or was there something when you were like, I want to do something big now, bigger than <laughs> being an Olympic? Experience? Right, so the story goes, Mike from the Meningitis Research Foundation drove to my house from Bristol. And that's a two-hour drive. So you know when someone drives that far, they're going to want a favour. And he (laughs) sat in my lounge and he said to me, you know, drinking a cup of tea, we send loads of people up Kilimanjaro to raise money for us. Do you fancy it? So I went, yeah, all right. (laughs) Um, So he finished his cup of tea and off he went. And when he left, I Googled Kilimanjaro because I didn't know what it was. So I'd love to say that there was this amazing story that I had this like, big dream of climbing this mountain, but that wasn't the case at all. I just agreed to something. But I mean, I had a bit of an idea, listen to the name Kilimanjaro, but my geography's not great. So yeah, that, that was basically how it all started, um, just on a whim. I went, yeah, okay, I'll give that a go. And it kind of became so much bigger very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing watching the footage of sort of your final moments up that mountain. Do you remember any of it or is it all just a massive days? (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit towards the end. So story goes, um, we looked into it. Other people had been up in a wheelchair um, and they'd been carried to the top. I didn't want to get carried to the top. I wanted to do it myself. So we set this goal to become the first person in the world to get to the top in a wheelchair without any assistance. Um, the information that we were getting back, that it was probably going to be doable. It was going to be kind of rough terrain at points, but it was probably going to be okay. By the way, I should explain now. I'm an amputee and I've got prosthetic legs, but I've got bad scars from the meningitis. So that's why I do things in a wheelchair. So I never would have been mm. able to walk up Kilimanjaro. But right. that was so that was the idea. We were going to try and become the first person in the world to get to the top of the wheelchair. Um, and then we got there and it was just kind of clear that that wasn't ever going to be doable, really. I mean, day one, we set off in the chair. It was meant to take three hours. It didn't. It took six hours. Day two was meant to take between four and five hours. Didn't. It took 10 hours. Oh. And the next day they said to me, we're going to have to carry you. And I said, no, you're not. And we nearly had a fight and a punch up on the side <laughs> of a mountain in Africa. And um, I had some knee pads with me, some carpenter's knee pads. So I duct taped them to my legs jumped out my chair and just started crawling and I'll be honest with you 
that's just because I'm stubborn and I thought I'm not being <laughs> carried. I mean, I didn't go like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Wow, this is going to be amazing. I just went, well, no, I'm not. You're not carrying me. <laughs> and a moan. And then I jumped out and started crawling. And then I crawled for four days. Wow, four days. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you were um, asking about the summit, weren't you? Yeah, so that night. I No, but that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, again, I just I wasn't getting get carried. I think the banter. Yeah. My rugby team, if I'd, if I'd been carried out the mountain, I'd have never heard the end of it. Remember, I'd play with people, like I said, that I'm not the least disabled person on my squad. They would have called me, I don't know, carried up the mountain Aaron or something forever. That was not going to happen. So, um, yeah, I just dug deep, really. And I didn't know what I'd achieved until I got home, to be honest. But that, that last night was like, uh, it was just horrendous. We set off at midnight. I just wanted it to be over the whole time. I was in so much pain. My knees were in bits. Knee pads were full of blood. I was throwing up because I'd reached failure by this point. Um, and it was just a slog. I mean, we got there the next morning at half past 10 in the morning. And it was such a relief to get there in the end, to be honest with you. It was it was amazing. And I'm so proud to have done it. But my gosh, I never want to see that mountain ever again. Mm. So being someone who, you know, always is sort of almost thrust upon with ideas to do things and just says yes, is what it just sounds like for your <laughs> that life. That should be the title of this, shouldn't it? <laughs> do, do you think that you goal set at all? You know, because obviously you set a goal to go up Kilimanjaro, but are you a typical goal setter in life? Yes, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, you know, joking as we speak, but yeah, I think it's really important to set goals. There's a really great speaker called David Heiner and he talks about um, setting massive goals. You know, don't mess around. Why do you set anything that's smart, specific, achievable, realistic? That's a rubbish goal. Don't set smart goals. Set massive goals and charge at them. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's a really great person to speak to about that. But, um, yeah, I always do. And I've always got a to-do list to do. This is probably my thing of never being settled that I spoke about earlier. Um, yeah I've always got a list of stuff I want to be getting on with like lockdown hey work's been cancelled let's do some DIY let's re you know build an extension or something that's just what I'm like I can't I can't just sit down and stop yeah I think it's interesting you bring that point up though because there are sort of different people in life who you either got the people who set huge goals or people who set you know more manageable goals sort of weekly goals which they can then attain to reach those bigger goals um and I think it's really interesting talking to people, especially on this podcast, you know, like what, how they sort of appreciate those different levels and what's best to work towards. Because I always think if you set a huge goal for yourself, I always feel sort of better about it because there's a little part of me which thinks I'm never actually going to be able to do it. So when I don't make it, I feel sort of like, oh, that's fine because it was a huge goal. It doesn't matter. Whereas for me personally when I set like smaller goals and I don't make them, then I give myself such a massive like pain in the ass because I'm like, oh, I didn't do that tiny thing, which I should be able to do. And I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, and um, in my sport, I'm, you know, I'm quite privileged in the way that I've got people around me who support me. So we've got this massive goal, which is get a medal at the Paralympics. And then that's a whole team effort, the way that we all work together. I kind of won't go into the technicalities of that, but then on you know, on a personal level, I have a team of people who support me of my training locally. So even though we're in lockdown and I can't get into a gym at the moment, you know, I'm going to meet my trainer, John, in the morning um, at the outdoor sports centre down the road. And, you know, we'll put some cone down and we'll do some training. I'm really fortunate. I have a lot of people who help support me towards my goal. Does that make sense? 
Mm, I have a yeah, big support sure. team around me as well. Mm. It's more difficult when you're out on your own. I get that. Yeah. Having created such you know, an exceptional legacy and having had so much success in all your sporting achievements, what would you say to 15-year-old Aaron if you could sort of go back in time now? Oh, you know what? I, I think about this a lot now because I'm really happy with who I am. And, um, I, I'm not, you know, I think this is probably the worst and best thing that ever happened to me. Worst for obvious reasons, but best because it gave me this completely different outlook on life. I think just mm-hmm. to be able to go back and say, do you know what, mate? It's all going to work out in the end. Don't worry. Because when I was laid there, it was scary, you know, and it was, yeah. it was tough and it was a lot of pain and things as well. So, you know, I've interesting changes and stuff, which weren't very nice. And, Oh, everything that goes with it, really. You know, and I had a lot of adjustment to do. And um, but being at the other side of that now, and having a beautiful young family, you know, playing international sport, um, you know, I'm happy, bunny. But yeah, I don't know what the the exact advice would be. Just <laughs> just that that was beautiful. That's so to be fair. I'd like to go back to sort of when I was seventeen, eighteen, and just party hard again because that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to go on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. Um, so a recap for you. It's just, I'm going to read out some quotes and you've got to tell me whether you think that they've been published in articles online or whether you think that I've made them up. And then we just chat about them. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Go on. <laughs> cool. So our first one is, the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, should really be asking, who do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, that sounds like something you might see on Facebook. So I'm going to say real. Yeah. Yeah. I made it up. I made oh, it you up. made that up. <laughs> that looks like one of those. Ins- yeah. Oh, okay. I'm making um, it difficult for you. Sorry. It's <laughs> no, no, okay. Yeah, go on then. <laughs> no, it was just because uh, I just felt like uh, I hated that question sort of coming out of uni. Like, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? And then I was thinking about it the other day and I was like, surely it's better to ask, you know, who do you want to be? You know, I, I want to be driven or I want to be kind or I want to be empathetic or whatever. Um, and okay, they, like those might not necessarily pay the bills, but I just think it's a nicer way of maybe a less scary way of like saying, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? Yeah, I guess so. And unless you go down that sort of traditional route and there's a specific job, you know, that you really want to do. No one knows, do they? Let's be fair, mm. you just jump from one thing to another until you find something that kind of fits. Um, and then you might make loads of money where you don't. But yeah, who do you want to be? I like it, yeah. I like that. It's very deep. Well, thanks. You should take it one of those mean, you know, little things and then circulate it. Put your name <laughs> at the bottom. It was one of those 11.30pm thoughts at night, you know, when you're lying in bed nearly asleep and you think of it and you think, oh, for God's sake, I've got to wake up and write this down now. <laughs> so our our next one is 60 percent of young people have felt so stressed by pressure to succeed that they have felt overwhelmed or unable to cope 60 percent i'm i really hope that's false if that's gotta go false that's not real thing 60 sounds too high no it's actually true 60 percent of kids 60, six zero of young people aged 18 to 24 have felt stressed by pressure to succeed. That's unbelievable. They, they yeah. really kick up the bum, don't they? Or something. Or <laughs> hug. What are you going to do? I know. It, it was a survey carried out by Mental Health Foundation. And I, like you, I'm just intrigued and like saddened by how and why it happened. 
like I speak to that sort of my parents' generation and they were like, mate, like your twenties is the best time of your life. And I'm like, yeah, but no, people don't think that anymore. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether it's this pressure that we put around success, which is so unhealthy. I don't know. Is it because it's, I don't know, maybe it's jammed down their throat all the time through social media. I, mm. You know, I didn't have that. And I think that was a positive. That's 60% yeah. of them are stressed about. Uh, yeah, that is bad. That is bad. You just got to agree to stuff and then you'll be successful anyway. <laughs> That's my motto. <laughs> just say yes. <laughs> just say yes. Yeah, just try it. Yeah, well, within reason. Hold on. <laughs> yeah it is sad and also in the article said three quarters of mental health problems are established before the age of 24 which i can actually believe but um still just like something needs to be done about it you know i don't know how we change that mm, and i think it's only gonna get worse with the electronic devices and things isn't it i don't know maybe mm. i don't know my kids seem to be taught about it more though they it seems to be more of an understanding. So maybe this generation just slipped through the net because it was so new. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, and our final one, the world is meant to be explored. Taking an adventure by yourself will help you grow your perspective. Gosh, it's a bit cringy, isn't it? Go on, say that again, please. <laughs> the world is meant to be explored. Taking an adventure by yourself will help you grow your perspective. Oh, Oh, it's not for me that really just to, oh gosh um it's so cringy um I know. it's probably true then isn't it because it is so bad yeah that was published <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it just makes it you know when you shiver you're like oh God, why 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 25 things you must do in your 20s according to life hack that's like go to a, it should be like go to a festival yeah yeah uh, finish a bottle of rum on your own um <laughs> we should probably stop this in a minute before I say those things do drive you know be driven around in a convertible car um Ooh, nice yeah go on a holiday to Magaluf you did that right I did do that yeah me and Vicky had a great time yeah. we went, it was the end of the season we didn't have any money it was a teletext holiday yeah, I did go to Macaluf, yeah. Had a great time, met some cool people. We didn't dive in a hotel, but it was fun. I feel like if you don't go on one of those really shitty holidays, then you haven't really done your 20s right. Everyone <laughs> no, should wake it, up with yeah, their yeah. head in a Spanish toilet, you know, at some point. So Yeah, and then you, when you're a little bit older and you've got a bit more money and you can afford a hotel, which, you know, has, you know, sinks that work or something, then you feel like you, you deserve it. <laughs> I earned it, yeah. Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much Aaron this has been so fun and I've literally got I'm smiling like a Cheshire cat now I've literally my cheeks hurt because I've been laughing so much so thank you no thank you thanks for having me it's been really nice kind of you know just having a chat thank you to the extremely talented composer and producer of this podcast Pete Haff and a big thank you to you guys at home for listening if you're enjoying the podcast so far then please feel free to leave us a review we absolutely love reading them and it helps more people find us we'll see you next week bye